Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. This is the word of the Lord. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. It seems appropriate before we get started to... um, pray again. Um, One of our own, Megan Wilson, is having surgery this week as well on her thyroid. So I'm going to pray for her uh, because we believe that the Lord answers those prayers. Uh, And uh, if you know Megan, uh, she would pray for you. So uh, let's pray for her. Heavenly Father, um, we're so dependent on you for everything. for life and breath and uh, warmth for food um, and for our health especially and we're grateful that we have good medicine available to us here where we live we pray that um, you would uh, steady the hands of uh, Megan's uh, surgeons on Tuesday would you steady her nerves for John's uh, anxieties as his wife goes under the the knife and uh, for their children Uh, to see their mom uh, um, go through um, a difficult time and there's some uncertainties. I know that there's some excitement and there's hope and there's a whole mixture of emotions that are happening and be with their little ones that they would be able to have faith uh, that uh, you're going to take care of their parents. And we're so grateful for the Wilsons and what they mean to us and we know that you're going to care for them regardless. And we pray that you would bring her through this. as a ministry to those that uh, will be will tend to her in the hospital as a ministry to us pray that uh, we would help her and that help serve them this week uh, and in the coming weeks as as she recovers we pray that uh, this whole process would bring glory to jesus your son and our savior it's his, in his name we pray amen well good morning we're in a series uh it doesn't seem like we're in a series because we just started it and we had snow and ice and stuff like that but we're in a series called the subversive kingdom and we're challenging ourselves in this series to see how the kingdom of this world is kind of upended turned upside down uh, by the kingdom uh, of christ and we're asking ourselves questions like who is who is jesus what did he come to do uh how do we live as his disciples And perhaps the most weighty question is, why did he die? Why did he have to die? Uh, And Matthew locks in on this question here uh, in this chapter, in this text that we read 
uh, this morning, and I think it's perfect for us because we, I don't think we get a clearer exp- explanation of Jesus' uh, reason for having to die than in the passage we just read. And this, this answer of why he had to die speaks to each and every person who's ever lived, and obviously that includes all of us And here because the answer uh, gives us not... Jesus didn't have to die as some sort of tragic accident. He got ground up in the wheels of the Roman government, or he didn't die, uh, didn't have to die, so that he could be some model example uh, for humility uh, and how to serve others. What Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus' death addresses each one of us at the point of our deepest need. The point of our deepest need. And we see in this text this morning three things. Uh, and hopefully you'll be able to remember these. You see the desire for greatness. You see the definition of greatness. And you see the demonstration of greatness. So let's jump into the text. I want to back up just a little bit. I'm going to read verses 17, 18, and 19 right before our reading just to give us some context. It says this in verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took twelve, the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And Matthew wants to highlight Jerusalem for us because that's where he's headed. That's where Jesus is headed. That's where he's going. He's going to go suffer. He's going to go be crucified. And that's Jesus's mission. That's the core reason why he came, was to make it to the cross. And this is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus predicts his death for his disciples. They didn't get it the first time. Second time, he gave them some more information. Third time, he gives this this shocking, clear prediction of what's actually going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And we have sort of an equally shocking response from the disciples uh, in response to this this manifestation of pride uh, that comes from Jesus' closest friends and actually some of his family members, James and John. And this is where we see the desire for greatness. Look again with me in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. As I've been meditating on (coughs) these verses and the request that James and John's mom bring to Jesus, it just brought up a bunch of memories of seating assignments and how stressful seating assignments can be. Where we sit has a strange way of causing anxiety in us. I don't know if you feel that way when you walk in here, uh, but maybe you can remember when you were in school and you walk into a new classroom, or especially the cafeteria, uh, or the bus. Uh, finding a seat matters so much to so many people, and it's, you know, maybe you're boarding a Southwest Airlines plane, and there's not assigned seating, and so it's anxiety, and it's, where am I going to sit? Where's the best spot? And especially weddings, ceremonies, and receptions, right? Where you sit matters, because how close you are to the bride and the groom kind of determines how important you are to the bride and the groom. If you're back tucked back in the corner, uh, then, you know, you know where you stand, right? So, or where you sit, actually. So uh, James and John are, are wondering, who gets the best seats in the kingdom? 
modern day translation, they want Jesus to tell everybody that they're his favorite. They desire to be seen as great. And interestingly, this is the only place where James and John appear not with Peter. If you're familiar with the Gospels, uh, James and John are always with Peter. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They're kind of like the inner circle of Jesus. They're the squad within the squad. And they're always together. But it was just a couple weeks ago we went through the passage where Jesus is uh, rebuking Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And I think James and John, good friends that they are to Peter, recognize, hey, this is our opportunity. Uh, we can get ahead because not only is Peter just got rebuked, but we're family. We're cousins to Jesus. And now's, now's our opportunity. This is our chance. How are we going to do this? We'll send in mom, right? <laughs> because let's be honest, who is going to refuse a mother's request? That's Jesus' aunt is coming up to saying, hey, will you let your cousins be right and left in your kingdom, first and second chair? You'll never meet a mom who thinks she has an ugly kid. No mom thinks she has an ugly kid. Every mom thinks their kid is special. And in, in our better moments, my wife and I look at each other and we're like, man, aren't our kids special? They're not just special, though. They're like especially special <laughs> among all the special kids. But look at our kids. They're especially. And I wouldn't think you were a good parent if you didn't think that about your own. Um, but you also wouldn't be a good parent if you didn't think your kid wasn't a horrible sinner in need of a savior no matter how old they are. And, and we're learning that lesson as well. Our kids aren't just especially special. They're especially sinful. But here's the thing. The mother goes to Jesus, and he, he doesn't even address James and John's mom. He goes right past them. He goes to the boys who are probably behind her back because Jesus knows that their motive in sending their mother uh, isn't so that they can be close to Jesus for all eternity. Uh, it's, it's not about intimacy with the master. They just want to look good in front of other people. Uh, and Jesus is going to get them there. They desired significance. They desired greatness in the eyes of others. They desired to be magnified in Jesus' kingdom. And they, this was their moment, sort of, to grab the spotlight and act in their own self-interest. And Jesus says to them, You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Yep, we can, they said. It's in, those, it's in that reply, I'm just struck this week by just how subtle and pervasive the satanic impulse is, even within Jesus' own closest friends and family and disciples. Again, two weeks ago, we saw Peter try to get Jesus around the cross, try to avoid the cross. Jesus, we're never going to let that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you are a stumbling block to me, Peter. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And James and John are doing the same thing. Two chapters later, same thing. They're tripped up by merely human concerns. They just couch it in sort of more <laughs> religious lingo. And it's a satanic impulse that's deeply embedded in all of us. In our sin, we all desire to be magnified apart from Christ rather than crucified with Christ. We try and circumvent the crucifixion. And Jesus told his disciples when they first started out in Matthew chapter 10, it's a long time ago for us, but he said, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake 
will find it. Translation, ambition in this life for greatness in this life will end up stealing your life. The way to greatness in the subversive kingdom is a call to serve and even to die. I came across a fascinating article this week in the Chicago uh, Tribune uh, called Satanist Puts Faith in System. Um, that's a great title. Uh, Satanist Puts Faith in System. And it's about a 30-year-old factory worker named Jamie who's going through a custody battle with uh, multiple ex-wives. Um, and he's having trouble uh, because he has a tattoo on his arm. And it's the tattoo of a cross. And you wouldn't think that that would be a big deal in a custody battle, except that the tattoo on Jamie's arm is a cross that's upside down. And it forms the letter T in the word Satan on his arm. And Jamie's attorney <coughs> said that this was a simple religious liberty issue because Jamie's a member of the church of Satan. Uh, and obviously his ex-wives thinks that's a problem with their children and, uh, and that Jamie shouldn't be uh, the attorney says Jamie shouldn't be discriminated against because of his beliefs. Uh, and the lawyer, ironically, who's actually playing the devil's advocate in this scenario, calls in a satanic priest. He calls in a satanic priest as his expert witness to provide the case, the crux of the argument. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is what the satanic priest said. He said, Satanism doesn't have anything to do with the devil. The Satanists said that their religion doesn't believe in a real personal devil or in any god or supernatural power. The priest said, Satanism instead worships the ego, the power of the self. That's what the upside-down cross is about, the turning on its head of the Christian values of humility, meekness, and servitude. Satanism isn't really devil worship, since Satan is just a symbol for pride, liberty, and individualism. <clears throat> That's a pretty good definition, biblical definition of devil worship. And the scary reality is that I find a lot of that definition in how I operate in my weaker moments, which there are plenty of. I'm prideful. Maybe you are too. We all bear a sinful tendency toward pride and to exalt ourselves, and that's going to express it self in different ways and where we live and our levels of maturity, how old we are and all of that. Uh, but we all crave that, that power that comes with self-exaltation. Look at verse 24. It says, When the ten heard about this, that James and John had approached Jesus and asked this question, they were indignant with the two brothers. Remember when you were little and someone called shotgun before you did? Remember how ticked you were? how indignant you felt like that's my spot man i you know you just assumed it you're indignant the disciples are indignant but not in a holy way because they're ticked that they weren't the first to call shotgun because they're riding shotgun for all inf infinity and beyond right the right and the left of jesus in his kingdom and the disciples are just like us in that way i'm going to read you a quote from a philosopher named william irvine he says this, most people seek fame and fortune just in different ways. If universal fame eludes them, they seek regional fame, local renown, popularity within their social circle, or distinction among their colleagues, right? You're the assistant to the assistant regional manager sort of thing. Likewise, if they can't amass a fortune in absolute terms, 
They seek relative affluence. They want to be material, materially better off than their coworkers, neighbors, relatives, and friends. I don't know if you've felt that way before, but I certainly think that that is true. For some of us, self-exaltation uh, is, is as obvious as standing in front of a mirror thinking, I'm, I'm the best, I'm, I'm the prettiest, I'm the strongest, whatever, I'm the fittest. For others of us, greatness kind of looks like uh, pursuing a career and pick your poison, selling cars, dental hygiene uh, to the detriment uh, of others. Think of the middle-aged dad in high school who just puts all this pressure on his son to be the athlete and he's driving his son uh, because it's his own dashed hopes and it's his own ego that's really fueling sort of the mistreatment of his son or the woman who puts all this pressure and just sort of just comes in and, and takes over the wedding planning process for her daughter uh, to sort of recapture the romance that she wished she still had. Whatever it is, pride and status seeking, we can come up with tons of ways, uh, it hits home and it kills community. You see, the, the relationship between the disciples is fractured. They come in and they're upset. It binds us up. It turns us inward and it turns us against each other. And that's the essence of sin. It's hard to look at, but it's also the essence of all the problems in the world. And Jesus, in his gentleness, he sees that this competition between the disciples to determine who is the greatest is tearing them apart. And so he calls them together and he hits the reset button and he redefines greatness in their minds. Look at verses 25 through 27. The, the disciples have this desire for greatness, and we all share that desire to be great. And Jesus defines it properly in verses 25, 6, and 7. He's gentle, he's patient, he's humble. Verse 25 says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus is saying, this is the way the world lives. Everybody lives in a certain way, exercising authority over others. And you're living like that right now. Don't live that way. This is not to be that way with us and, and he teaches them if you want to be great you want to be at the top you want to be at the place of preeminence then i'm going to teach you how to do that he says in verse 27 whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all because servants in this life get to rule in the next slaves in this life will be kings forever it's what jesus is saying that's a subversive message you want to find true greatness the glory that you're really after make everyone else in the world the center of your interest not yourself you want to be great look to meet the needs of others instead of looking for them to meet your needs that's what jesus is saying he's giving them just lessons from the school of humility right here and he's saying to them all and they understand this i think we understand this you're in a prison. When, when you're concerned about yourself, you're in a prison. You're in bondage. And you can never love anyone because it's all about you. Everything is filtered through your lens. Self-exaltation, Jesus is saying, is the opposite of love. And so if you want to get free, you've got to serve in humility. And what I wrestled with again this week is something that's just crazy frustrating. It's because I know that. 
And I think you know that. The disciples actually know that. All of us know that true greatness is found in humility. All of us know that. But at the same time, you're kind of pinched by that because I know that I'm to serve and to be humble and to not get hung up on the rat race, but I do it anyway. Like, I get hung up. I'm not sure why. It just, as try as I may, I end up like the disciples. It, it comes back and it rears its ugly head. And I realize that if all we have are verses 26 and 27 of Matthew chapter 20, Christianity and Jesus is really no different than any other kingdom, than any other religion of the world. There's no gospel. Christianity would just be another list of good stuff to do. It's the heart of religion. Religion tells you you're broken. Here's a list of things you do, need to do to fix it. You need to serve in humility. And you need to put yourself below others. And you need to constantly do this because you're always going to feel guilty and it's because you're not doing it enough or you're not doing it in the right way. The problem isn't that we don't know what to do. It's that we lack the power to do it. We're in bondage. We're trapped in sin. This pursuit of substituting ourselves for God is actually a terminal disease that we all share. And then I saw the beauty of verse 28 because Jesus tells us that we don't need a new definition of greatness and humility. We need more than that. We need for someone to tell us. Uh, we don't just need, uh, I'm sorry, we don't just need someone to tell us what to do and how to be. We, we need help to actually be that. We need help to actually do that because we know the truth. And we're bound. We need to be delivered from the bondage of sin. Matthew says, you need to be ransomed. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the demonstration of greatness. The Son of Man, the Messiah, came to serve. I mean, it, that is hard to wrap my mind around. The Son of Man, the Son of God, came to serve. And here's the way he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus isn't about doing great things for Jesus. Following Jesus is about learning how to be served by Jesus. And that's not easy. That's the heart of Christianity Learning to be served by Jesus. This is what sets Jesus apart from Muhammad, from Buddha, from Confucius, from anything else. Our God does not need our service, nor is he glorified by hirelings who are, you know, hired to help him out. He is so full and so self-sufficient, so overflowing in power and love and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. He does this by taking on human nature seeking us out, telling us that I didn't come so that you could serve me. I came to be your servant. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I want to serve you. In the first century, uh, in the ancient world, the word ransom meant to buy someone's freedom. I mean, we kind of understand how that works. If someone is, is bound, is kidnapped, uh, then there's a ransom that is often asked for to be paid so that that person can be freed to a new kinder master so if you paid someone's ransom you bought their freedom and when you do that by bringing a substitute of equal value you bring in something that's worth what they're saying the prisoner or the slave is worth and it's often translated redeem 
And Jesus sees his death as a, as a ransom to release many from bondage. Bondage from what? Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, he describes us, all of us, as enslaved to sin. He says this in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. Now, Jesus doesn't see us occasionally sinning. I'm not someone who occasionally sins. I'm under the power of sin. It has me in bondage. We are slaves of sin, and we need to be ransomed. Matthew says, from its power. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Ransom many from the guilt and power of sin and the penalty of death and hell. Christ died to save sinners, right? That's why we're here. Romans chapter five. Let me just read this for you. It says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's the beauty of Jesus' message. That's the heart of the gospel. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't after slave labor. He doesn't need it. He came in search of those who would be his friends. He said, greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. He came in search of those who would trust him to serve them. He's after friends. Do you trust Jesus to serve you? Are you willing to humble yourself and let Jesus serve you? Are you a friend of Jesus? And I just want to ask the question, so what difference does it make? What difference does this make for us this morning? And I want to say this, Jesus' ransom of us as sinners does two things. It gives us a new identity, and it gives us a new mission. It gives us a new identity as those who are serving not to receive honor and glory for ourselves, but we, uh, we serve out of the overflow of Jesus' kindness and love for me. When you see that Jesus is ransomed for you to bring you into his family, you're serving out of an identity of Jesus as my, my brother, the one who accepts me and loves me and knows me deeper than I even know myself. And I don't have any reason to exalt myself. What reason could I possibly come up with that would be worthy for that? That's the new identity. And the new mission plays itself out in your love for your neighbor. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you're going to deal with cups, one pastor said. And it's a great way to put it. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you're going to deal with cups. I took the big cup so you can take the little cups of ingratitude and inconsiderateness and suffering and all of the things that we think are big in this life, and you can serve others in the midst of ingratitude and inconsiderateness and suffering. There are mothers here with small children. I've got nothing to offer you. I just want to give you props. Like, you serve in the midst of inconsiderate, ingrateful, and there's a lot of suffering. And I just want to say, Jesus hears you, and he's with you, and he took that big cup so that you can serve in the midst of that. 
Jesus didn't say, I'm taking the cup for these people over here, meaning James and John and all those doofuses that don't understand why I'm coming. I've told him three times. He could have, but he didn't. He served them. He died for them. They fell asleep while he's in the middle of being betrayed. And what does he say to them? He doesn't come back and rebuke them. He compliments them. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He finds a reason to compliment them, even though, you know, in the midst of his betrayal, while they're supposed to be praying for him, they couldn't even do that. Jesus died for stubborn people. I have to think that James and John and their mom were stubborn people. And Jesus died for them. Are there stubborn people in your life? Probably. Jesus died for people who were always wanting from him, always asking him for things. Are there people in your life who are always taking and not wanting to give back or unable to give back? Jesus died for them. He came to serve those people. Jesus died for people who, again, slept through the hour of his greatest need. Are there people around you who are, you are mad at because they're not noticing how important you are to their well-being? They're not noticing your needs, and so you take it personal. Jesus positioned himself as a servant even to those who fell asleep in the hour of his greatest need. Are you positioning yourself as a servant to them? And all I want to say is, like, let's look to Jesus. Let's, let's look at what he did for us. Let's draw from the resources that come from the cross. He ransomed us, not to make us happy, but to prepare a people, Peter says later on when he writes the letter uh, in 1 Peter. He said, Jesus came to prepare a people for himself, eager to do what is good. And they're doing what is good out of the identity of those who have been served by the Savior. As we move to communion, I want to remind you of the question of James and John that they ask. They say, hey, Jesus, when we come into your glory, can we sit on your right and your left? And in your Bible, if you turned over a few pages to chapter 27, it narrates this, this scene of the crucifixion of Jesus, which we we celebrate every week. We see everything right hap happen right here in, in chapter 27 that Jesus predicted in, in chapter 20. Just as he described, he's delivered over, he's condemned, he's mocked, he's humiliated. And then we get to verse 38, and he's crucified. And what Matthew wants us to see is that this is the moment of glory for Jesus. What looks like humiliation in the eyes of the world is actually glory. He came to ransom us. And in verse 38 of chapter 28, we see two thieves on his right and on his left. Verse 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus' disciples don't understand what they're asking. They don't understand that the high point of Jesus' mission is going to be hanging between two thieves on the cross. But that is the glory of Jesus. And that is the glory of Matthew's gospel as he holds up the cross as, as the ransom. Jesus is the ransom for us. Only Jesus can drink the cup of God's wrath that we deserve so that we could enter his kingdom as brothers 
and sisters. So as we come to communion, I just want just to reflect on that, invite you to reflect on the one who stood in your place, who came to ransom you, to redeem you, to pay the penalty for your sin. He didn't just come to tell you to be nicer or to serve more or to be more humble. He came to stand in your place, to be your ransom. And so we celebrate in communion this meal where Jesus crucified in our place, drinking the cup of the wrath of God, which we deserve. He received the punishment of God for our sins, as we just sang about. If you see Jesus as the one who ransomed you, then as, as the one who stood in your place, as your substitute, as your only hope, then we invite you to come forward. What we're going to do is, is take the bread, tear off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the wine or the juice. If you don't see Jesus as the one who ransomed you, I invite you to consider Christ this morning. As you see people taking the bread, which symbolizes Jesus' broken body, consider Christ this morning. As you see them dipping the bread in the wine or the juice, consider the blood that was shed for you. And don't leave this morning unless you've talked to somebody about that, about how you can be freed from the power of sin to live forever with our great God. Let me pray.